welcome to the Sports Playbook, where we discuss solutions to issues that impact sports. I'm your host, Angela Hazlett. Today's guests are Neil Turnus, an assistant professor at Arkansas State University, and Sam Ehrlich, an assistant professor at Boise State University. Today, we're going to discuss First Amendment concerns with NIL policies. Can state actors restrain athlete speech? Let's get to it. Welcome, Neil. Welcome, Sam. Thank you for joining us today on the Sports Playbook. Happy to be here, Angela. Thank you so much for the invite. Thank you for having us. Well, I'm really excited to learn a little bit more um, about your, your research line, which has to do with NIL and the First Amendment. So let's give a little bit of context here with the Supreme Court ruling in the NCAA uh, versus Alston case, where the court upheld the district court's decision that the NCAA's practice of limiting student-athlete educational benefits is a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. So subsequently, the NCAA revised their policy to make it permissible for athletes to be compensated for their name, image, and likeness, or NIL. So, Neil, what else can you tell us about the recent changes regarding NIL and the rights of student athletes? Well, it's important to note that with Alston, even before Alston was considered, states were passing NIL laws that restricted the NCAA's ability to restrain NIL activities. And with Alston, which didn't directly deal with NIL at all, the NCAA effectively punted on any type of legislation or direct governance over NIL. They've since pushed out a series of policies, uh, recommendations, and policy suggestions over the past year or two over what should be done with NIL or restraints on NIL, and even come out with a big series of we're going to have harsh penalties if you violate NIL standards. Um, but as we saw recently with the University of Miami, there are a couple of women's basketball players uh, charged for NIL uh, violations that the teeth on the NCAA's policies on this have been relatively weak. And what the NCAA has effectively done is kicked all of the enforcement of NIL back to the universities and the states, which are creating NIL-based laws, which, while that may help deal with the antitrust issues the NCAA is facing regarding this, it actually opens them up to a lot of scrutiny regarding the constitutional issues in limiting what athletes may or may not participate in for their NIL activities. So a lot of these uh, policies include restraints on things like what athletes can participate in as far as vice industries, things like gambling or alcohol or tobacco, whether they can participate in competing uh, deals with, with entities that are competing sponsors, things like if a school is a Nike school, can an athlete then sign an NIL deal with Adidas? Or if they have a deal with Coke, can they sign a deal with Pepsi? And a lot of these policies are incredibly broad. And as Sam and I have written about, they are very likely to not survive uh, a First Amendment challenge by an athlete plaintiff. I, Neil, that's a, those are really interesting observations. And the NCAA is is uh, 
desperately making changes to avoid this antitrust scrutiny. Um, but you mentioned that in doing so, they've sort of passed off um, this NIL uh, governance or responsibility or potential for restrictions to states and to universities. So I would like to hear a little bit more from Sam. Tell me a little bit more about the state actor piece and, and how that might trigger some First Amendment issues and concerns. Sure. And it's important to note that um, in 1988, um, we had a case called NCAA v. Tarkanian, which was a case where uh, former UNLV coach Jerry Tarkanian, uh, he had sued UNLV, ironically not the NCAA, um, after he had been uh, he had been fired for recruiting violations. And he said that UNLV, a state school, did not give him proper due process file, uh, protections uh, in violation of the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. And the NCAA worked itself into the case. They uh, they they inserted themselves as intervener and ended up being the, kind of the main defendant in the case because they argued. Well, it's not UNLV that kind of, you know, UNLV is kind of the one who issued these 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 penalties, these sanctions at the end of the day, but we're the ones who are really pushing for it. It wasn't UNLV, the state actor, it was us, the NCAA, and we're a private actor, so we don't have to deal with the Constitution. Constitution only applies to government actors like state schools, the government itself, um, led the legislatures, etc., and the Supreme Court, in a very tightly contested 5-4 decision, said Yes, the NCAA is not a state actor. The NCAA is a private entity. And in fact, you know, sometimes you have a situation where uh, a private entity can transform itself into a state actor through the way they engage in their actions. Uh, for example, you know, kind of one of the key ones here is when they're in joint activity with uh, with the state actor or when, uh, for example, the state actor or the government is kind of directing them to do something. But the Supreme Court said, well, actually, we have a situation where it's actually the opposite where a private entity is directing the state actor to do something, and therefore it's private action, it's private activity, it's not state action. So we argue that when the NCAA punted, as, as Neil very aptly put it, um, on July 1, 2021, faced with these uh, various state laws that were going to force schools in the various states to institute NIL policies, when the NCAA punted the, their uh, their administrative oversight over NIL and their, their really their governance over NIL to the public schools, to the state legislatures that have passed these laws, that transformed these policies, that transformed the way these policies are handled into state action, because now it's not the NCAA directing the state actor to do something like it was in Tarkanian, it's the state actor doing it kind of on their own accord, either as the legislature or the public university. And so private institutions, if there's no state policy or state legislature or wouldn't be subject to the same scrutiny, is that is that what I'm hearing you say? Uh, yes, because they wouldn't have to they wouldn't be bound by the constitutional restrictions at all. Uh, it's kind of a cliche to say, that, you know, the First Amendment only applies to the government. It only applies to state actors. It does not apply to private actors where. You know, if I'm acting you know, on behalf of Boise State University, a public school, I have to comply with the Constitution. But if I'm just acting on my own accord or if it's a private company acting on their own accord without any kind of government interference, they don't have to comply with the First Amendment. Um, and it's kind of the the social media, the Twitter thing where um, everyone thinks that Twitter has to comply with the First Amendment and they violate it when they remove uh, certain tweets. But that's actually not the case. So the biggest risk is for public institutions, public universities, and those institutions that operate in states that, that pass some kind of legislation. 
So Neil, talk to me a little bit about the First Amendment and why you think the First Amendment applies to some of these NLEO policies. Well, first off, we have to define this as speech. And the First Amendment deals with multiple forms of speech. The first two clauses deal with establishment of religion and the and free But we get to free speech in the third clause of the First Amendment and the Assembly Clause in the Fourth Amendment, where we're really talking about the ability of someone to speak and the ability of ideas to be shared. Um, The idea behind the First Amendment is that we create a marketplace of ideas. People are allowed to freely share ideas, and therefore other people can rationally choose between them. When we're talking about athlete NIL speech, we are really talking about what is called commercial speech. That is speech that is intended to sell a product or service. For First Amendment purposes, Commercial speech does receive less protection than other forms of speech, which I'm sure we will get to at some point in this discussion. But commercial speech does have protections, and it is still protected by the First Amendment. So the idea that I can go out and sell a product or service, as long as that product or service is legal, as long as I'm not misleading the public, and as long as there's not a very specific government interest to restrict that speech, I'm still allowed to go promote my product or service. And that is exactly what athletes do with their NIL opportunities. Whether that is an athlete sending out a tweet in support of uh, their favorite soda brand or a website or any type of business that might have filed a deal with them, um, all of that falls under commercial speech. And speech can be written, it can be spoken, it can be social media messages, all of that falls in there. So our General idea is that athlete NIL activity is a form of commercial speech that is protected by the First Amendment. And that would include commercial advertisements, sponsorships, endorsements, and things of that nature based on uh, an athlete's name, image, and likeness. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And one important thing, I mentioned commercial speech here. One of the major issues that we found is that not all NIL activity is purely commercial speech. There's actually quite a bit of political speech going on as well. Um, Kaylin Clark and another athlete, Kaylin Clark, the uh, point guard for the University of Iowa women's basketball team, uh, recently signed a deal with, I believe, Goldman Sachs to serve on a uh, promotional campaign or political ad for them promoting small business awareness. And this is political speech, which receives an even higher degree of protection under the First Amendment than commercial speech. And when we're talking about protections here, what we're really saying is that what is the standard the government has to meet in order to stop people from speaking? And in each of these cases, we have to think about how speech is restricted. So with NIL activity, a lot of the restrictions that are made, the way that these restrictions are structured is saying that athletes have to go to their athletic department and show them what NIL NIL deals they're planning on signing or planning on participating in, someone from the athletic department has to sign off on that. And then they're allowed to participate in it. And this is whether or not the deal includes any sort of marks from the university. So it doesn't matter if they're using the university logo or the athletic team name in the advertisement, the athletes are still expected to get prior approval from the athletic department. And these types of pre-clearance requirements are themselves a very major restriction on free speech that the Supreme Court has put a very high level of scrutiny into. This idea that 
bureaucratic officials can essentially determine on a whim whether or not you're allowed to speak or allowed to participate in a message is something that the Supreme Court has historically frowned upon and is not something that uh, we believe would survive any type of challenge. Moreover, a lot of the restrictions are being that are being presented are content specific. We mentioned before saying that an athlete can't participate in uh, advertisements for tobacco or alcohol or competing sponsors. These are based on the content of the speech, not the time, place, or message of the speech. And again, content-specific restrictions on speech also receive a very high level of First Amendment scrutiny. And these types of restrictions are written in a way that is incredibly broad and in a way that doesn't really just gives a lot of latitude to athletic department officials and athletic administrators to decide whether or not something is okay. And I know Sam and I both work quite closely with athletic department officials in our day-to-day job. I know we all do, and they are good people. They're also not usually trained in this specific issue. And the allowing <laughs> them to allowing them to sort of make speech decisions on the fly is a recipe for instances where athletes' constitutional rights will be trampled upon. So, Sam, tell me, what are the interests in the university in having athletes register their NIL deals and having this clearinghouse? What's what's the purpose behind that? And why do you why is Neil and perhaps you as well criticizing that process as a as a restraint? Yeah, I'd say the the university interests here are going to be twofold. Um, and obviously, you know, your experience may vary. Um, there are some universities who may have other reasons for having these kind of pre-clearance things. But the one big one is that the NCAA requires it. The NCAA guidelines really do, you know, they they say, you know, NAL deals must be cleared with the university first. And a big reason for that is to ensure that NAL deals are not uh, kind of what they call pay for play rather than kind of using, actually using the, the name and likeness, whatever, however you possibly try to dis- define that distinction where, it's not a deal where you're getting paid to go to a specific school or getting paid to stay at a specific school, but instead um, you're actually getting paid for the um, for for what you're actually doing for the endorser, for the sponsor, for whomever you're signing the NIL deal with. And the NCAA, and by extension universities, because they don't want to get punished by the NCAA, they want to make sure that these deals are not pay for play. So they, you know, kind of the, the pre-clearance requirement is, is in large part to deter that and to police that. A second reason is, um, you know, Neil mentioned that a lot of these restrictions have to do with the vice industry uh, type of things like uh, tobacco, alcohol, pornography, gambling, um, guns, etc. And universities don't want their institutional brand being attached to uh, these particular vice industries. And even if their logos are not being used in a particular advertisement, the fact that the student or the fact that the, the athlete plays at this school, it's going to create a natural connection. Um, and it's not only, you know, in, in this case, it's not only really vice industry in, in this case. Sometimes, as Neil mentioned, sometimes it's regarding ambush marketing as well, where if Ohio State, for example, they have a policy, uh, their institutional policy forbids college athletes from promoting Pepsi anywhere on campus, um, uh, which A, is incredibly overbroad, and B, 
Um, it's in place so that their their individual sponsorship, their institutional sponsorship with Coke is protected. So they want this preclearance requirement so that nothing really gets through the cracks so that, you know, they don't have an athlete going around promoting Pepsi on campus that, you know, hurts their own sponsorship. They want to be able to cut that off before the speech is actually made, which, again, and I agree with Neil Hill very much so, um, that preclearance, that prior restraint uh, represents a major First Amendment problem. And then the on-campus versus off-campus speech, you mentioned the Ohio State policy is is likely overbroad because they're saying they can't endorse Pepsi anywhere on campus. But what do you think would pass the, the muster, pass the test for um, First Amendment, uh, allowing institutions to restrict the way this the NIL speech is communicated by these athletes? Well, it would have to be something that's pretty narrowly defined. And Neil is the expert on form analysis, so I would defer to him. Um, but uh, as far as these policies go, you know, specifically kind of picking out this Ohio State policy and really picking out a lot of the, a lot of similar policies, um, Anita Mormon at University of Louisville and Adam Coco also at University of Louisville, they just published a really great article talking about the different ways that state legislatures define what they call on-campus or excuse me, official team activities, OTAs. Um, and a lot of these states forbid college athletes from engaging in NAL activities during official team activities. And the problem is they don't define what official team activities are. And when they do, it's incredibly overbroad. It uses words like et cetera, which, like Neil pointed out, it gives universities a lot of latitude. And even when they do kind of define it, um, sometimes with et cetera, for example, univer- uh, not university, but the state of Virginia, their state NIL law includes classes as official team activities, which personally I think is pretty ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I'd love to hear more from Neil about kind of the specific form analysis part of it. Well, it's interesting, right around the same time Alston came out, we had another Supreme Court case dealing exactly with First Amendment restrictions off campus. And that was the BL versus the Mahanoy area schools case, which dealt with a cheerleader at a high school, not a college or university, sending out a snap message off campus, not during school hours, that included some profanity in it. And the school tried to punish her for that. Um, and what the Supreme Court ultimately said is that while K through 12 high schools do have a certain latitude in regulating off-campus speech when it affects the safety of students, when it affects uh, potential threats to the campus environment, they don't have this paternalistic need to police speech off campus to the extent that they did. And the important part of that is twofold. One, it's off-campus speech, not during school hours, not during official school activities. And two, this is K through 12. This is a high school, which high school students are effectively less protected during school related to school activities than a college student would be. We give college students much more free latitude, much more wide berths as far as First Amendment protections go, because frankly, and I'm directly quoting here, universities are not enclaves free from the First Amendment. Um, We've seen that in Papish versus Missouri. We've seen it in Doe v. Michigan. There are so many different cases where we simply state that the, the background or the precedent that protects or that is meant to enforce certain standards for K-12 students doesn't apply to college students. So when we're talking about the forms here and where this applies, as Sam said, it would have to be very narrow 
And with very narrow, it would almost have to apply to specific disruptions to team activities. Uh, we've seen as many, and I know Sam's talked about this when we've discussed ambush marketing, but with the dream team participating in basketball and the Olympic basketball covering up logos, we've seen professional athletes do this or participate in NL activities during games or during official ceremonies, and it's fine. And the question is, why should universities be and colleges have a higher level or higher level of interest in protecting their brands than the Olympics, uh, than the United States Olympic Committee? So um, the level of protection that might be afforded to colleges or universities is very narrow and would almost certainly have to deal with things that are disruptive to specific team activities. I know I've seen a lot of athletes who will do things like live blogging. They'll have their branded view of, I'm walking into the practice facility, I'm putting this video on YouTube, it's sponsored by a local entity. That's all NIL activities. And this exists and this happens. And they're probably wearing their university's logos and jerseys oh, at absolutely. that point, right? Or walking by the signage and, and whatnot. So, And so this to say that this is disruptive or something, when this exists and has existed, is going to be a very tough argument for schools to, to pass. Interesting. Sam, what can you tell us about a little bit more about the, the vice industries that have been brought up by both you and Neil and why this is a, a of concern to universities, but is this something that they can restrict athletes from uh, endorsing products and businesses that are kind of fall within these vice categories? Yeah, and again, uh, it, it would just have to be narrowly defined. And when you're talking about vice industries and, you know, for for a lot of it, uh, it would fall under the realm of commercial speech, as Neil talked about, so long as, again, it's not overbroad, it's not something where um, you're restricting more speech that is necessary when you're starting to, you know, verge into political speech, um, especially um, and in certain vice industries, you may have a little more, more latitude. There may be more of a uh, substantial government interest when we're talking about the specific test um, in ensuring that college athletes are not, uh, you know, aligning themselves with gambling companies, aligning themselves with uh, tobacco, alcohol companies. Uh, the the government interest might be stronger there, um, though. You know, for alcohol in particular, I think it would be very difficult for a lot of universities to claim that, given that there are a lot of official university sponsorships with alcohol, which is really going to break down that argument. But again, you know, kind of the the where things really get tricky and where things get really kind of uh, problematic for universities and for states is when it starts to get overbroad. Uh, the Mississippi state law, for example, um, is my absolute favorite example of just a. a ridiculously overbroad clause they have a clause in their nil law that uh forbids it, it's a it's a not a permissive restraint um like saying well universities can regulate this it says universities must regulate this they they must forbid athletes from engaging in nil any nil deals that uh conflict with institutional values mm. how do you define what an institutional value is <laughs> and what, the fact what is, is an institutional is, value <laughs> yeah and it's not narrowly defined. Um, you know, Neil and I bring up the bring up an example in the paper um, where, you know, for example, maybe the institution doesn't want their athletes getting involved with political campaigns, or in particular, maybe they don't want to, uh, the athlete getting involved with a 
political, uh, maybe a, a candidate for governor that's going against the current governor because, hey, they don't want to make the current governor mad at them for, you know, kind of in, even indirectly Especially or implicitly in, endorsing the, the rival. If they have um, something so, to do to control their budget as well, that could be a problem. Right. So the fact that this state law, you know, this legislative state law, which is certainly state action. I mean, you're talking about the root of state activity here, you know, passing a law. Um, the fact that you have a state law that not only uh, that not only allows universities to uh, enforce things that, you know, conflict with their institutional values, but requires them to do so. It's just it, it's the, the very definition of overbreath. Neil, if you could point to maybe the best policy that you've seen that is is the most narrow policy, what would you pick uh, as far as um, something that's maybe a little closer to passing a First Amendment test? Um, ironically, I think the right policy is to essentially have no policy. I know that sounds very strange, but the correct policy is to allow athletes to market themselves as adults, to not have the athletic department serve in a pre-clearance requirement. Athletic departments already have a mechanism for protecting their own marks and for protecting their reputations, just as universities do. And they can they can choose not to participate in an athlete's NIL activity. We've already seen this. Um, I know, for example, uh, the Murray twins at the University of Iowa, two men's basketball players, did an advertisement with a local Mexican restaurant, the university didn't participate in that. They had to wear their own clothes. They had to wear their own garb. And that's totally fine. Athletes can do that. If institutions or if businesses still want that uh, endorsement from the athlete, they will pay for it. And so essentially the universities don't need to get involved here. And the more state action, the more regulations we have, the more problems that creates for the athletes, for the universities and the states themselves. So I would say the correct response is to just allow things to happen, make sure athletes are informed, make sure that uh, they have access to adequate representation, which that's an entire other podcast, but <laughs> the uh, but making sure that they have access to the market in a safe way is really all that's needed at this point. And there's these uh, there's collectives that are that are getting together that a lot of institutions have boosters or, um, you know, maybe alumni that are helping kind of sponsor and, and these NIL athletes. Sam, what would you say about these collective groups and their impact on NIL? Well, that's uh, probably a whole nother podcast to talk about because that, that's <laughs> a, that is a huge issue right there is there any let me let me make it a little more narrow for you is there any first amendment issues with these collective groups getting involved in the nil deals see that one's a little bit tougher because you know if the collective is the one that's enforcing these these uh these guidelines um you know these collectives would hypothetically be private actors so they wouldn't have to but at the same time one, you have university control over these collectives, whether the universities are willing to admit it or not. And the fact that, you know, the universities are, are ultimately the ones who are enforcing these policies. I mean, collectives are not necessarily going to, you know, they're, they're going to be picky and choosy about which deals they, they sign, but they have the right to do so. Um, which deals they sign to, you know, have athletes participate in as well. But they have the, they have the right to do so. The, the bigger concern is, is school policies and state laws. All right. We we have about 30 seconds for each of you. 
what is one final thing that we should really know or consider that the states and universities should consider? Uh, Neil, I'll start with you in regards to NIL and the First Amendment. Well, I would start with two things just to add on to Sam's comment about collectives, that collectives themselves do operate under the purview of the athletic department of the universities, particularly at state universities. They are acting at the direction of coaches in many cases, or definitely in hand with coaches. It would be very hard not to see them as state actors. But I would simply go back to the point I made earlier, that these are adults, these college athletes, they are adults. They are legally able to make decisions, allowing them access to representation and allowing them to participate in these deals is the simplest and easiest course of action. And I think the less restraint we try to put on it, the better. Sam, to you? Well, this may be a controversial thing to say, depending on your audience, but this all goes away if college athletes are employees. Um, if you institute these restrictions through collective bargaining uh, instead of through legislative action, um, then it's going to be perfectly legal both under the First Amendment and crucially under antitrust law as well, because there are antitrust exemptions for collectively bargained uh, terms of employment. So again, this all goes away if athletes are made employees. Sounds like a couple more podcasts to come. So <laughs> thank you, Neil, and thank you, Sam, into your insight into First Amendment concerns with NIL policies and state actors' restraints on athlete speech. So thank you both for your time today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, You're thank welcome. you. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for our viewers for joining us today on the Sports Playbook. Our next episode, our guest will be Ashley Davis Carter, and who will discuss how she coaches athletes to become confident leaders through sport. We will see you then. Thank you so much for watching Think Tech Hawaii. If you like what we do, please like us and click the subscribe button on YouTube and the follow button on Vimeo. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and donate to us at thinktechhawaii.com. Mahalo.